Well, I want to start by reminiscing to a time that maybe some of us don't like. It's high school. Back in my senior year, I had a fifth period math class. So this was right after lunch, and there were times when uh, my teacher, Mr. Jordan, he would just leave the door unlocked, and so the students would just head into the classroom. Or sometimes in the middle of class, he would just leave, presumably to the restroom, I don't know. But um, being the uh, goofball and rebellious teenager that I was, I would walk up to the front of the class, and I would impersonate Mr. Jordan. Um, I won't do that impersonation. Um, I never got caught in case there's some suspense there. Uh, But that's not the point. The point is that my behavior as a student was inappropriate. That's simply not how I was to wait for our teacher to return, sitting there uh, impersonating him, which is another way of saying mocking him. I mean, it sounded like him, but, and the students laughed, but that's just not how I was supposed to be waiting for our teacher to return. Now, that's a silly example from a very silly uh, human being. Um, but what of the believer? What are we uh, doing in this life? As we've been looking at, I mean, we finished the, our, our time in the book of Daniel. Right? We're, we're waiting for the end, right? Not just of your life, but we're waiting for the end of days, as we heard in the book of Daniel. And the question for us to consider as believers, and the, the question that our passage answers for us this morning is, the question, what are we to be doing while waiting for Christ's return? Another way to think about it is how are believers to anticipate Christ's appearing? How are Christ's followers to ready themselves for the Savior's return? That's the question that we're considering and the question that Titus 2 verses 11 through 14 answers for us. And so that's what we're going to see, that that we are to be waiting a certain way for God uh, to have Christ return. So let's jump right into verse 11. as We just read it uh, together, but let's read uh, just verse 11, and we'll take it a verse at a time. We started this passage, and it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And let's just pause and, and address that last part there, all people. Now, what the Bible verse does not say here, and what it does not mean is that God has saved every individual on this planet regardless of how you respond to Jesus Christ. That's not what all people means. Okay, that some universalists would argue that, but that's incorrect. It's all, and you, when you step back and look at how Paul uses people and all people, uh, the book of Colossians, the book of uh, Romans, uh, he, he's talking about all people groups, especially in the context of Jew-Gentile distinctions. What he's saying here is that God's grace is offered to all peoples with no exclusions. God's grace has been and remains a free gift of God, according to uh, Romans 6.23. Now, let's pause and let's actually address the grace of God, this free gift. That for those who are longtime believers, for those who have grown up in the church even, who have heard that phrase, God's grace, We've heard it so much that I think there's actually a danger in losing track of its meaning. If we're not careful, we hear about God's grace so often, we start forgetting what it is, what it means. 
R.C. Sproul, before he went home to be with the Lord, he, he warned that we get accustomed to God's grace. At first, we're amazed by it. The second time, not quite so surprised. The third and fourth time, we begin to expect it. Then we assume it. Then we demand it. And we're angry if we don't get it. The greatest distortion in our thinking, he said, is thinking that God owes us mercy, that somehow God is obligated to be gracious to us. He said the minute the idea comes in your head that God owes you mercy or owes you grace, let a bell go off in your head that says, oops, I'm, I'm confusing these concepts. Because grace, by its very definition, is voluntary. God is not required to be merciful. He reserves the right to be merciful to whom he will be merciful and to be gracious to whom he will be gracious. You can plead for grace. You can beg for grace. But but you can never, ever demand it. And why, why is this the case? When, you, when we uh, listen to what uh, Romans 2 says, 2, 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? No, we're not to presume. We're to know that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. We can never demand it. Because as Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses in which you once walked. It was God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and he didn't have to, right? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Later on in Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing It is the gift of God. Not not a result of works so that no one may boast. This is what God has done. He's given you grace. Just as a reminder, when it comes to forgiveness, we need to uh, understand that forgiveness requires one party, the offended party, it actually requires that offended party to absorb the offense. I want you to think of a time when somebody hurt you, offended you, sinned against you. Guys, this is not a trade system. If that person came to you asking for forgiveness and said, well, I will offer to mow your lawn and do your laundry for a year if you forgive me. No, you don't work for somebody's forgiveness. That person, the offended party, has to absorb that. That's why the Greek word, the fiemi, is to forgive, it's to release, right? It's not a conditional, I will release you if you do my laundry for a year. That's not forgiveness. That's not grace. Right? There's no demand for something in return. And this is, God, this is what God has done for you. He has absorbed your sin and offense against his holiness. But obviously God is still a just God. He is a a righteous God and a wrathful God. So he took that wrath and what does he do? He pours that out onto his son. 
to save you. But if you repent and ask God forgiveness, God has absorbed the sin and offense and he took that and he takes that wrath and he poured it out on his son. That's God's grace to you. That's God's gift. Just to make, uh, make this clear, how do you know if this is describing you? How do you know if you are saved by God's grace? How do you know if your name is written in the book of life Daniel and Revelation talks about? Well, look at Titus. Look at, look at the end of chapter 1. Just look at the context. All right, verses 15 and 16. Titus 1, verses 15 and 16. Notice there's a, a description of those who are saved and those who are unsaved. Titus 1, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But brothers and sisters, for those of you who are saved by grace, we return to the question. You have been saved, so why are you still here? You're waiting, aren't you? You're waiting for Christ's return. And why didn't God just save you and then take you up to heaven when he saved you? What are you still doing here? And what are you to be doing? Again, the question, what are are we to be doing as we wait for Christ's return? How are believers to anticipate Christ's appearing? How are Christ's followers to ready themselves for the Savior's return? Our second point, that believers are to live godly lives by grace. Verse 12, our second point, this is how we're to live. Notice verse 12, I'll read it again. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Guys, grammatically speaking, the subject of the sentence is still grace. That's the subject, the grace of God. And what is the grace of God doing? Right? That's what we're looking at. So notice, guys, God's grace is not only pardon for the repentant sinner. God's grace is his power, presently speaking. God's grace is not only pardon for the repentant sinner. It is his power. You, look, you see that in 2 Timothy 1. Right? Be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Right? We can't disconnect the grace of God that justifies us and then has no power in, in our present-day living. So look at verse 12. What, what is his powerful grace doing? Training you. Instructing you. Uh, this is a clause, grammatically speaking. It's, it's a purpose clause. Uh, all you need to know about that is that uh, this is the goal of God's grace. This is the aim of God's grace. That is the purpose here. And that's kind of uh, written into the, uh, the, the Greek structure of the sentence here. That's, this is the purpose clause. Right? God's grace is not just to save you, but it is to train you. God's grace is not just his pardon, but it is, it is his power. The word here to train uh, it's, the, it's the word that teachers recognize that we have to take these classes talking about teacher, uh, teaching methodology, pedagogy. Right? So this is teaching you, training you, instructing you. 
And what is God's grace teaching you, instructing you to do? How are, to be, how are we to be trained? Right? It says there in the text, to live rightly, to live righteously. Right? But first, what does that require? As a recipient of God's grace, that requires that we put off the old self. Notice, look, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We need to put off the old self, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The word ungodliness there is the word used in the New Testament to often describe the sin committed against others, this this horizontal aspect. The second one, worldly passions, that's the word describing the sinful cravings that we would seek after instead of God in this vertical aspect. These lusts, these desires that God forbids, these lusts and desires and passions that the world offers you. As soon as you wake up, as soon as you open your phone, as soon as you hit traffic. And what are we to do with these What do we do with ungodliness and worldly passions? The Bible says you are to renounce. Renounce them. That word means to disregard. It means to to deny, to refuse to pay attention. Take your pick. Disregard it, deny it, refuse to pay attention. Let me give you a practical illustration of what renouncing would look like, what it would mean to disregard ungodliness, to deny these worldly passions, to refuse to pay attention. Let's go with the phone. You're on your phone or your computer. You're, you're, you're visiting a, a news website. And as you're, trying to, you're reading a news article, you see an ad. And it's so distracting because I spelled ad incorrectly in my notes. I'm sorry, A-D-D. You see an ad, you see an advertisement while you're reading a news article. But you know what kind of ad it is the inappropriate ones. It's the ones that aren't edifying. It's the ones that are tempting. Tempting you to sin. So what do you do? The Bible says renounce, right? Disregard. Deny. Close the app. Refuse to give it your attention. Refuse to give it your regard. Refuse to give it your acceptance and tolerance. Refuse to let your heart be enticed leave that site. You don't hang around it. But notice also, guys, that, that ungodliness, sinful uh, cravings, worldly passions, these things are not always sourced outside of us. It's actually sourced inside when we're tempted by our own desires. Right? It doesn't even have to be an external device, a, a phone, your computer, within your own heart. Guys, when you're sitting there at work, When you're laying there in your bed, your own thoughts of discontentment, the seeds of bitterness that would take root in your heart if you let it. Maybe thinking thoughts like, man, God, if things were just different. God, if I just had a little bit more of this. God, if I had just a little bit more of that. You know, if I just had what she has, if I just had what he's got, God, I would be satisfied. Guys, what do you do with thoughts like that? What do you do with temptation like that? 
Do you flirt with sin? Do you throw gasoline on that fire of temptation? Do you keep dwelling on these thoughts? Do you keep returning to that website? Or you do, do you renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? See, we're never told in the Bible to flirt with sin. Right? God never tells you to do that. Go, go stand as close to sin as possible just to see how much you can resist. Gandhi did that. I, I know this, this society kind of celebrates Gandhi. I, I, I do not, and I don't think Christians should. Uh, I think he was kind of twisted. He, he's the guy that, uh, he, he had naked women sleep in his bed, including his teenage grandnieces, to prove his ability to withstand that temptation. I know I'm bursting everybody's Gandhi bur- bubble here. He didn't have nice things to say about Christianity, by the way. I'm not saying this is tit for tat, but this is just, uh, it's not how we are to deal with temptation. What does God say about sin? and temptation, and renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. He says, flee youthful lusts, 2 Timothy 2. Not flirt. He says, flee it. Uh, those of us in, in, in reading the Bible, we just read about Joseph in Genesis, right? It, it says that Potiphar trusted him so much that all he cared about, Potiphar, his master, all he cared about was food. Guys, what do you look like when all you care about is food? The very next verse contrasts that with, but Joseph was very handsome in appearance. Okay, you see, you get the picture? And then Potiphar's wife came to him, the text says, day after day trying to sleep with him. Day after day. Husband, all all he cares about is food. This young guy is handsome in appearance. The Bible tells us that purposely. And day after day, she tries to sleep with him. What young guy could resist that? Only a guy who, who seeks to honor God. What does he do? Does he flirt with Potiphar's wife? No, he flees. He literally runs. Right? So we've got this New Testament epistle verse, and in the Old Testament, we have an, a narrative that illustrates that. You don't go near temptation, even physically speaking. The Proverbs talk about that. Do not enter the path of the wicked, Proverbs 4. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, Proverbs 5 says. Proverbs 7, let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't walk on that path. Guys, if there is idolatrous idolatrous sin that tempts you, whatever it may be, materialism, the love of earthly treasure and earthly materialism, the idolatrous approval of man, right? Letting your, your heart's motive be the approval of man versus being approved unto God. Guys, that's, that is one of the most twisted and grievous idols. Seeking and living for the approval of man. Right? That's never to be your heart's motive. Guys, when idolatrous sin tempts you, renounce it. Disregard it. Deny it. Do not give it your heart's attention. You don't flirt with temptation. You don't feed that temptation. You flee temptation. And because of the love of God, right? you don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. 
Ephesians says. You want to please the Lord Jesus. That means you don't, you don't go around and, and taste test temptation. No, you refuse to order it for the table. Why? Because you love the Lord. Right? Just like, let me give you a, a, a vivid example of that. We, we love Pastor John. And we all know that he's got a, an, an allergy to uh, cilantro and, and mushroom. If you go and sit down at a restaurant and Pastor John is right next to you and the server comes over with a sampling of today's special, right? Cilantro-wrapped uh, mushroom. What do you do? What do you do? You say, get that thing out of my face, you silly clown. Right? Get that out of here. Right? No, you say it nicely because he didn't know, but you don't order that for the table. You don't taste test it. Pastor John, you want a bite? No, you don't. Let, let me um, uh, just share what the, one author, Thomas Leah, he said that there, there must be a conscious, willful repudiation of thoughts, words, and actions that are opposed to true godliness. You, there must be a conscious, willful repudiation of thoughts, words, and actions that are opposed to true godliness. And guys, you know, always remember the source of the strength of your sanctification. Always remember the source of the strength of your sanctification, of the subject of Titus 2.11, right? It's God's sufficient grace, especially in your weakness. It's God's indwelling spirit who makes you like Christ. It is God's grace that is training you, instructing you against ungodliness and worldly passions, earthly treasures, temporal lusts, material things. Guys, anything that you're tempted to be devoted to over your affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, you can, uh, by the way, you, know, you, you can enjoy a good meal. That's just not to be your heart's affection. You can enjoy a vacation. That's just not to be your life's ambition. You can enjoy fitness, but that's not your, the reason for your existence. You can enjoy what God has given you. They are God's gift to you. Uh, but to paraphrase uh, one, one preacher, God's gifts are never meant for you to, to obsess over the gifts. God's gifts are meant for you to thank the giver. Right? God gives us these things on earth, but the intent is never for you to be obsessed with and to idolize these things on earth. But it is to focus our hearts and, and thank the giver. I, I really do think one of the greatest weapons that, that Satan wields is, is convincing Christians that they have no idols in their lives to repent of. You know, the things that, if you're honest, the things that we can't let go of, the thing that I, I can't live without on this earth. Whatever you, you, you secretly are more devoted to than Jesus. We need to be careful, and we need to just listen to what God's Word says. 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Guys, this is one of those things where you don't need different translations. You don't need to look at the Greek. You really don't. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Right? We're not living the way we ought to as a follower of Christ if we have the love of the world in us. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
brothers and sisters, we are to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We are to put off these things. And now, what is the believer to put on? The second half of verse 12 tells us. Titus 2, verse 12 says, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Guys, this is an imperative throughout Scripture. This is the command. We heard it. I mean, Peter says it in 1 Peter, right? Be holy, for I am holy. And he's not just uh, saying that on his own uh, volition. He's quoting Leviticus 19, where God says that originally. Be holy, for I am holy. And very specifically, he mentions self-control. That word for self-control is living prudently, moderately, right? Sensibly. What are those things? That, those are uh, manifestations of self-control. And no one is exempt from this command. If you look at the book of Titus, right, no one is exempt from, from this command to grow in this area, right? And to strive to have the fruit of the Spirit made evident in your life. Titus 2, verse 2, if you see that. Right? Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Very next verse, verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled. Titus 2.6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. This is for everyone. We are to strive to live self-controlled. But, but what does that mean? Does that mean that you're really good at willpower? Does that mean that you, you're pretty good at mustering up your own self-power uh, and, uh, uh, and willpower? No. Be careful with that. This is not a worldly self-improvement we're talking about. Right? The more we grow in self-control and the, the way that we grow, the means that we grow in self-control, right? All that is, is it's sourced in, in the fact that you're living in submission to Christ. And it is the love of Christ that controls you, compels you, that drives you. That the love of Christ that, that courses through your veins. Growing in self-control means that not only you're, you're living in submission to Christ, but you're, you're living in utter dependence on the Spirit. That's when you're going to have more self-control. Not when you're just knocking it out of the park with some ad that show, you know, tells you how to uh, you know, take care of, attract your, uh, your, your habits. That's, the, that's a good thing in and of itself. But remember, this is a heart issue. Self-control is, means that we're, we're growing in a, a submission to Christ and our heart is, is being driven by, fueled by the love of Christ. You have self-control because you have died to self. And you deny yourself. You take up your cross daily and follow him. And what does that mean? What does it mean to, to deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow him? Taking up your cross actually means embracing your, the death to your old self. Embracing it. Like Christ literally embraced that cross and he walked up that hill. You too are to do the same. You are to embrace the death of your old self. And you embrace your identity in Christ. And all of this, remember, is by the grace of God. God's grace has not only pardoned you if you're a child of God, God's grace trains you, instructs you, teaches you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this 
present age. Let me finish this uh, section, this point, with one um, area of application. If you would turn in your Bible to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. And to save time, I'll just read from verse 4. James chapter 3, when it comes to self-control, here is one area that I think we can agree we all struggle with. And this is this is an, uh, an aspect of our sanctification for us to continue wrestling with. James chapter 3, verse 4. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Self-control. Our tongues which are simply a reflection of our hearts. When we're not careful and we live like our old self, with our tongues we, we bless the Lord and then turn around and curse man who is made in God's image. These things ought not to be so. That's why we also we long for heaven. I long for the day where my tongue only speaks that which is good, acceptable and perfect in God's eyes. So if you ever wonder what we're to be doing while awaiting Christ's return, the Bible is clear. Obviously, we glorify God, we grow in grace, we're growing in godliness because it is God's grace that saves you, it is God's grace that trains you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. So how are believers to anticipate Christ's appearing? How are Christ's followers to ready themselves for our Savior's return? We are to live godly lives by grace. And thirdly, believers are to be zealous for good works, anticipating his return. It might say zealous of good works, but I, let's go with four. It's bad grammar there. Verses 13 and 14, let me read this for us waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So again, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the culmination of our hope. Guys, the New Testament word for... Uh, for hope, that Greek word, it doesn't mean what, how, the, the, the word that we use when you say, I hope I get a promotion. 
I hope we get good weather. No, that's not what the word hope means. That Greek word means uh, a fulfillment. It's an expectation. There's a certainty that we are simply waiting for. Right? That's different from, I hope they don't run out of Dodger Dogs. So specifically, this is pointing to the blessed hope of Christ's return. And I want to camp on waiting for a little bit. I want to camp on that. What I want to mention about the, the Bible is that waiting is not passive. Waiting is not passively sitting here, okay, let me twiddle my thumbs and, you know, kind of like the way we sent a text message that we really need a response to and we just sit there and stare like, you got it, right? You got my text message? Just respond. Why don't you respond? Right? That's not how we're to be waiting. The way we might uh, wait for an email, an important email response, so we just sit there clicking refresh. Right? Seriously, guys, there's life to be lived. Don't sit there waiting, clicking. To, that's, that's, that's not how we wait. Let, let me show you from the Bible what waiting uh, is like, how waiting is described. Wait, because waiting is actively being ready. Okay? I'm not going to touch the Old Testament. We just don't have time for it. So one passage to start off with, Luke 12, 35. Uh, I'll read it for us, or, or if you, you can turn there if you'd like. In Luke 12, 35, Jesus describes how we're to be waiting. And it's not a passive waiting, Luke 12, 35. It's an active waiting. Luke 12, verse 35 says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. For what purpose? So that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Look at verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Guys, waiting in the New Testament, it's, it's actively being ready. It's taking spiritual action, and it is not an excuse for spiritual laziness. Waiting for Christ's return is not an excuse for spiritual laziness. We see in the parable of the talents, right? This guy, uh, this guy got 10 talents and he put it to good use. And he was called good and faithful servant. This guy got five talents, put it to use, good use, and was told good and faithful servant. The last guy took the one talent and did nothing with it. He hid it. And his master, his response, who, and ref, this reflects Jesus' response on that day, he said, you wicked and lazy servant. You wicked and lazy or slothful servant. And he concludes there, cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice this was very much a salvation issue. So you need to be careful that if your spiritual life can be all summed up as past tense. Yeah, I remember this one year in junior high, I professed and I was on fire for the Lord. That's the summary of my spiritual life. What that's doing is, and what a parable like that is doing, condemning that kind of laziness, it's saying be careful because what will happen is, if that's how you live your life, you, you may reveal yourself as having never been saved in the first place. We're not to be waiting 
unready for Christ's return. We're not to be waiting with passivity and laziness. No, we're to wait with a joyful and vigorous response to God's grace. We're to wait with active spiritual growth. As Jesus had said in, in Luke 12, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. And we know with, uh, back to our Titus 2 passage, when it talks about waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know that when it comes to Christ's appearing, 1 John 3 tells us what will be has not yet appeared, but we, will know, but we know that when he appears, when Christ appears, 1 John 3 says, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And guys, we, we shall see him as he is because we will have glorified bodies, glorified hearts, glorified minds, brand new, perfected eyes, to see Christ as he is. And in Titus 2, verse 14, we must remember why we get to wait and eventually see him. Titus 2, 14 tells us why we get to wait for his return and we, that we get to eventually see him. Verse 14 says it's because he gave himself for us, because he redeemed us from all lawlessness. Galatians says that he became a curse for us. Right? And what, what's his intention? Look at the second half of Titus 2.14. It says there to purify for himself a people for his own possession. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. Christ died to make you his own. Christ died to cleanse you. Christ died to make you like him. And let's always remember 1 John 2, 6, that says, whoever says he abides in him, if you profess that you, you abide in Christ, it says you ought to walk in the same way he did. There's never any justification to say, yeah, I profess Christ as my Savior, but I can live how I want. No, the Bible says anyone who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked. We must pursue purity because he came to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Christ did not die for sinners just for his followers to then go back and delight in sin. God's purpose in saving sinners is not to have his children immerse themselves in sin and go out to the world and stain themselves with the very sins for which Christ died. Paul Washer illustrated this. He he. Um, made this illustration with a mother in the Midwest and, and her child is out doing chores all day. Gets himself all dirtied up. But he knows the drill. When he comes back into the house, he's to take off those dirty clothes, put it in that pile of dirty clothes, get into the bath and get clean. But one day, this child comes back uh, from doing all his chores, filthy as could be, but he's exhausted. So what does he do? He, he goes in their bathroom and he scrubs just some of the visible parts of his body. Just takes off just enough filth to show that the visible parts are clean. And then he hops in the bed. When his mother comes in, 
and sees the state of her child, what does she say? What does she do? Effectively, she says, you are my child and you will be clean. You are my child and you will be clean. And that is God's intention for those he sets apart to keep you from being stained from the world. Your your soul was purchased by his death. Your body of sin was purified by Christ's blood. So God demands that his children be clean, to grow in Christ-likeness and to pursue holiness and not the worldliness and, and filth of this fallen world. Last note on, the, on the, this, this um, illustration of this mother and child. What she would do in this situation is take her child who tried to get away with just cleaning a couple spots, takes, her, takes him to the bathroom, draws a whole fresh uh, bath, scrubs him down, and notice there's no abuse of authority there. Right? There's no violation of the boy's free will. This is God's intention this, in this illustration is to cleanse I have his children be clean. You are saved by grace. This this passage is telling us you are trained by grace. Right? And it is God's grace that uh, saves the repentant sinner. It's God's grace that trains the regenerate follower of Christ to deny this world's ways, to deny even yourself as we wait. Again, uh, Titus 2.14, he died to redeem you from all lawlessness, and to purify you for himself, a people for his own possession. And finally, those who are zealous for good works. Zealous. Uh, it's the same root, uh, at least in the, the biblical um, context, the same root for jealous. But in the English, jealous uh, started having a, this, uh, this, just this other specific meaning. Zealous, it means to be earnestly committed to a cause. It, uh, it describes someone who's a, an enthusiast, a, a loyalist. And when we see this word zealous used throughout the Bible, it's very clearly being zealous for God. 1 Corinthians 14, zealous for the Spirit and, and wanting to build up the church. Zealous for what is good. 1 Peter 3, even if you should suffer for it. Right? Being zealous for God, being zealous for building up the church, being zealous for that which God says is good, even if that means you have to suffer for it. It says here, zealous for good works. Now, I, I, I want to address this phrase, good works, because some of us, we're so trained by, you know, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We're, we're so Pauline in our soteriology. That was big words. Uh, we're, we're so trained to, oh, no, not good works. Just, guys, we forget. Guys, we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Right? Saved, uh, good works don't save you. Good works are how we respond to being saved. It's how we live once saved. But let's talk about this. What are good works? Or you can use the word deeds, good deeds. What is the Bible talking about when it talks about good works? Is it talking about letting that guy emerge on the freeway? Go ahead, buddy. I'll be nice. God, I'm such a good guy. Is it uh, putting a couple quarters in that guy's uh, cup? Is it uh, putting in a good word for someone at work? Hey, you know, I'm a higher up. I'll put in a good word for you. Maybe you get that promotion. 
Guys, those are all good things to do. Good works can uh, certainly include all those things. Yeah, sure, be nice on the freeway. Go ahead and merge, buddy. But if you, if you look at um, Romans uh, 2.6, let's go to Romans 2.6 so we can see a very specific clarification. What are, what are good works? Romans 2, verse 6. Romans chapter 2. What kind of works are we talking about? Romans chapter 2, look at verse 6, and we're going to go through 8. Look at that. Verse 6, he says, He will render, obviously God, He will render to each one according to his works. Ooh, is that letting people merge on the freeway? No. Look at verse 7. This is describing the works that God is talking about. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. That's the works we're talking about. Look at verse 8. By contrast, verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Do you see what the Bible is talking about when they're talking about works? Simply put, what have you and what are you doing with the person and work of Jesus Christ? Let's think about, if you don't know uh, Matthew 5.16, that's a good one to to have stored in your heart and to meditate on. Right? Because you're, uh, according to Matthew 5.16, you're supposed to let your light shine before others that they may see your good works. What? And, and, and pay it forward? No, no, no. The passage says, let your light shine before all men or before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Does that clue you in as to the type of works we're talking about we're not talking about the works that says hey you're at the starbucks drive through the guy in front of you paid for your order hey let's pay it forward let's pay for the guy behind us you can do that if you want and that guy's order is not 50 dollars. no these are not merely nice acts these are uh, these are the this is the way that we would live so that it would point others to Christ, so that they may give your Father in heaven glory. So sure, do good things. Help those in needs. Get to know your unbelieving co-workers. Do all those things, but make no mistake about it. There is one need. There is one goal. There is one hope. There is one Savior. God was not merely intending for, for us to to engage in social experiments. Do good work. See how long you can hold the door open for as many people as possible. That's not what God's talking about. Good works is pointing to the most important work, the work that occurs at the heart level, the work that occurs at the soul level. This is the good work that we are to be most zealous for, especially in light of last week's sermon on the resurrection of life versus the resurrection of judgment to come. All of us will die, and then comes the judgment. We will give an account for our lives, and that includes our neighbors, our family members, our coworkers, even that that supervisor who makes your life miserable. 
And sure, we can help someone with physical needs. You want to take that to the extreme? You can help that person get back on their feet, teach them the ropes, get them going, even, even provide some capital, help them get going on investments, and now he's rich. Man, you did a good work there. Sure, you can do that. But what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What good is, is exclusively focusing all of our time and energy on ourselves, our families, and, and everybody we, we, come in, we encounter with that which is temporary and material and just for this earth? I remember hearing a sermon like 20 years ago and the illustration was Monopoly because at the end of the day, what happens? It all goes back in the box. And when you and I close our eyes for the last time on this earth before our bodies are resurrection, it all goes into the box. We lay there in the box and they close the casket. Zealous for good works means we are most concerned with how our works, how our lives would lead to God's glory. That, they, that others would see how we're shining the light with these good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. I mentioned the, the rich man from Luke 16 last week. To summarize, remember, he, he had received the good things in this lifetime, clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. But when he died, he was buried and was in Hades and was in torment. And he asked Abraham for mercy. And Abraham replied, you had your comfortable life. You had your comfortable life on earth, and now you're in anguish. And he said, well, then I beg you, send Lazarus. Send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers Send Lazarus so he can warn them lest they come into this place of torment. And Abraham said, no, they have Moses and the prophets. They have God's truth. Let them hear them. He said to him, no, uh, if they don't hear, uh, you know, if someone goes from the dead, send Lazarus and then they will repent. And he said, no, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, if they don't hear the word of God, neither they, will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Be zealous for good works. Make sure that our life's energy and the works that we live out are that which is worthwhile in eternity's eyes that give glory to your Father in heaven. I mean, if you're a visitor here for the first time, I'll, I'll let you pass on this one. But for the rest of us, we know the name of this church, don't we? Lighthouse. What's a lighthouse? It's a light. And what's the purpose of that light? It's to warn people who are sailing for the rocks and cliffs cliffs of, of death and judgment. Shine the light. That's how we're to await his appearing. All the while we're, we're living in and navigating in this present age, Titus says, or Paul uh, says to Titus. 
this present age, when we hear that in the Bible, that refers both to the age we live in, right? The age we, we live in uh, uh, before the end time, but it also refers to the, 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 the world we live in, the, the world system, right? The sinful world system that, that is anti-God. Which is why Ephesians 5.15 says, Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. Making the best use of the time while you await Christ's return. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what are we to be doing? How do we anticipate Christ's return? How are we to ready ourselves for the Savior's appearing? Well, again, verse 12, to review, the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. All this for the sake of Christ. Since it is Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And guys, this is all a part of God's sanctification process. The past tense, he saved us from the penalty of sin in justification and present tense as he saves us from the power of sin as he sanctifies us and we're awaiting the future tense aspects where he would remove us from the very presence of sin and we would be glorified. Let me close with 1 Thessalonians 5 that says, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray and uh, prepare our hearts for communion.